And Lord, prepare our hearts to receive what you'll have us receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Check one, two, check, check, check. Can you all hear me? And see me? I was going to get that nervous washroom uh, visit out of the way, but I missed my opportunity, so it's going to be a really short preach. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It is an honor um, to be preaching this morning. This is a first time for me uh, here at Oceanside. Bill says no retakes. It's true. There's no simple cuts here like the booth. Um, and so for those of you that uh, don't know me, I have been uh, here at Oceanside since 2009. I moved here all the way from Toronto, Ontario. I uh, drove across Canada with my dad. Uh, it was my sort of spread my wings, get away from everything I knew mentality, and break away and come and temporarily hang out on Vancouver Island, uh, where I was met with a very nice couple, Mike and Deborah Graves, who so kindly had a friend pull a fifth-wheel trailer onto their front lawn, and I lived in that for a few months till I found my feet. But of course, after a few months, I did not find my feet, and so it was starting to get cold outside, and what happened was they actually invited me into their home. So this morning, um, I'm speaking about the prodigal son, and what's more important to me is that the honor in this for me is that I get to speak as a son in this house, not because I'm a good son, but because I had great parents who took me in. When I was, um, when I was growing up, my parents were brand new Christians, and new Christians are pretty radical people. If you ever met someone who's just given their life to Christ, they do some crazy things. My parents were no exception. And so one of the things that my parents were passionate about, because they had met Christ on their journey, they were basically in this place where they had pursued um, in going through the New Age movement, checking out different uh, forms of like uh, godlessness or godliness, whatever you want to look at, and pursuing everything they could, every avenue to try and find God. And what happened was my mom happened to be sitting downtown Toronto one day holding me. I actually think she was uh, breastfeeding me, and this guy came up and said, hey, what are you doing tonight? Do you want to come to a conference? And amidst all of this uh, pursuit in my parents of trying to find God, someone approached my mom, and in that process, God found my parents. And it made my parents as radical as they were pursuing God in other matters. It made them radical in Christianity, in finding the God of the Bible. And for me, uh, I was born into this lifestyle from the time that I can remember. I was super young, and I was trying to figure out, okay, you know, my parents are obviously, this is the way that we're going to live. This is all I know. And uh, it wasn't enough to just show up on a Sunday morning. No, they wanted to be involved in the programs. They wanted to help with kids. They wanted to do youth. They wanted to do the outreach into those sketchy communities. And they did all these things, and they sort of had us strapped on their backs, just taking us along for the ride. One of the things that they did and they were passionate about was us memorizing Scripture. So... There was this Saturday morning ritual in my house, the Holmes family house, where we would all sit around the table during breakfast, and what we would do is we would have this scripture, and we'd pull it out, okay, this is the scripture we're learning today, and we're going to memorize it. And if you memorize it, you're going to get a prize. Pogs, hockey cards, things like this, right? Those toys that you put in water that blow up. Yeah. So... So basically, we would always have this incentive to like memorize scripture, memorize scripture, memorize scripture. And it worked out amazing because my parents would put it to jingles. So we would learn hundreds of scriptures. And like literally, there was a few churches that invited us so that they could show us off for having scriptures memorized. And so it'd be like, oh, do you remember what Ephesians 2.8 says? And it's like, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it goes on. And so we would memorize all these scriptures, and, and we'd have these melodies and all these things going on. And then, it, it, of course, radical parents, you know, there's, there's always another step. So my parents had this, like, six-disc changer in the living room, and they wired speakers into every bedroom in the house. So you're just, like, settling in for the night. 
And then all of a sudden, you're dreaming of tooth fairies, and then you all of a sudden see a seven-eyed goat. And you're like, okay, we're listening to Revelation right now. In my bedroom, during the time I'm trying to sleep. Or you're just calming down, and then all of a sudden you hear, my name is Legion, for we are many. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about. These crazy Jesus stories. But when you're trying to sleep, you're trying to sleep. But what I'm saying is, we were saturated from a young age in the Word, in the scriptures, in learning and memorizing and being able to recite, 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 recite. And it was good. I don't regret it. I promise. But what's interesting to me in speaking about this parable today of the lost sons, son, punchline given, was this, is that Jesus had a very wide audience. He had sinners and he had tax collectors, but he also had Pharisees. And we live in a culture now where we think it's very hard to find the absolutes because our culture is so stoked and so excited about this idea of individualism. But Jesus had the toughest crowd. He had Pharisees who were Jews, who were God's chosen people. And he had the people, the outsiders, the ones who couldn't get in because they weren't Jews Because they weren't Pharisees. He had the sinners and he had the tax collectors. And what would happen is these sort of of areas, they would be around each other, but they wouldn't actually cross over. There was a chasm. There was a gap. And Jesus had this tough job of somehow having to extend the kingdom of God to the Pharisee and also to the sinner and the tax collector. Pharisees were pretty intense individuals. You know that from the time that a Pharisee, a young Jewish boy, was six years old, he was put into school, and it was his job over the six years to the time he was 12 to actually memorize the Torah. The Torah being the first five books of the Bible. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you want a New Testament equivalent, that's like memorizing from Matthew through to Hebrews. But it's, it's not Matthew and Hebrews. It's books like Numbers. It's Numbers. <laughs> it's not ideal. So imagine you're a six-year-old kid and you have to memorize three verses every single day for six years straight. We're talking about people, let's think about your upbringing, the things that are in you, the things that you hold dear to your heart, the things that you hold dear to your heart because you were, you were raised with those things. For Pharisees, it was scripture, it was the Torah, it was the law. Jesus was connecting with people whose passion was the law. Check this out. Um, in the Babylonian Talmud, which is sort of the body of Jewish civil and ceremonial law, it says this, and I quote, Before the age of six, do not accept pupils. From that age, you can accept them and stuff them with Torah like an ox. <laughs> stuff them with Torah like an ox. Does that, for me, that sounds like a Christian assembly line. <laughs> it's like all these little six-year-olds, like Genesis, dung, Exodus, dung. Like, you're just, you're stuffing them like an ox. But, you see, we've got this, this extremism on one side of the Pharisee. And then we have this other side, which is almost a retaliation to the Pharisee, which is your sinner and your tax collector. And what's interesting to me is Jesus was sitting and having a meal with them, and he was teaching them. And what happened, what we see, is that the Pharisees began to sort of like poke at him and mutter at him and say, look, he's sitting and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. But actually, he wasn't just sitting with them and eating with them. He was teaching them. But Pharisees were teachers. So they couldn't nitpick about the teaching because they would have done the same thing. So they found the fault that they could find. He's eating and he's sitting with tax collectors and sinners. But the interesting thing with Jesus is this. He found a way to connect these two vastly different sects of people. He found a way to bridge the gap, to close the the chasm, sorry, and to be able to bring a unity, a, a, a similarity in thought between these two extremists. Jesus used a medium 
that didn't subject itself to the extreme detail of the law. Tim Keller has this amazing quote. For those of you that don't know, Tim Keller is a pastor in Manhattan area, and he's also a renowned author. And he says this, uh, Jesus shows us in this parable that we pursue happiness and fulfillment in one of two ways. And this is going to be the basis for what I'm speaking about this morning. He says, we pursue happiness either through moral conformity or self-discovery. Now, in Jesus' time, moral conformity was by way of the Pharisee. Pharisees believed that on top of being God's chosen people, they could earn salvation through strict obedience to the Bible. Work ethic, character, moral conduct, these were all things that a Pharisee measured himself by in order to assume he was doing good in life. Paul, if we read about Paul, he thought the same thing before he met Christ. We read in Philippians, he says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law. A Pharisee, as for zeal, uh, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Here's the problem. When we live our lives as a Pharisee, inevitably we're human and we fail. And so what I do with my life is this. When I can no longer measure up to the law, I begin to incorporate the law of comparison. Comparison says, I'm not as good as the law, but I am better than that guy. You see, when we live our lives as a Pharisee, we're always measuring. Everything is a measurement. Everything is calculated. But now let's flip this. So we have here moral conformity. This idea that I can measure everything. This idea that I am somehow good enough to to measure up to the law. And if I'm not good enough, I'm at least better than someone else. And now we have the grand retaliation, the stance of the sinner and the tax collector. And it's this. It's the idea of self-discovery. And this idea finds freedom and fulfillment um, in being able to pursue goals and self-actualization outside of custom and convention. In, the view, in this worldview, you would be able to find uh, yourself in a far better place if tradition, prejudice, hierarchical authority, and other barriers to personal and freedom were weakened or removed. You see, in the time of Jesus, there was a huge emphasis on this pharisaical way of thinking. Moral conformity. Back then, self-discovery wasn't as prevalent as it is maybe today. But when we look around, is it fair to say that there's a huge push in our culture towards self-discovery? Self-discovery is almost like the worldview of the day. You don't really know who you are until you leave where you live. You don't really know who you are until you put away all the traditions of man, all the customs, everything, rip all that stuff, all the hierarchical things, that, the traditions, the things that have been. You've got to go get away from all of those things in order to really discover who you are. You see, we have moral conformity, which if we pull back the veils, we see is actually just the pursuit of self-righteousness. And we have, on the other side... Self-discovery, and in self-discovery, if we pull back all those veils, what we find is this. It is the actual pursuit of self-gratification. Are you hearing me? Jesus takes an approach that is far superior to merely getting caught in the details of the law. He could have beaten the Pharisees at their own game, dissecting Scripture and finding the truth and calling things out like, oh, call a spade a spade, let's just say it as it is. But Jesus took an approach that connected two worlds. 
Because Jesus was speaking to attitudes and not the outward appearance. Pharisees would wear these veils. And on these veils, they would have these tassels with beads. And what a Pharisee would do is they would go into their, into their place where they would pull this over their things and they would rub the things and they would pray. And so they would do this in public and people would see them and say, oh, okay, um, oh, that guy is praying. Oh, that guy's praying. Oh, look at that. He had a spare moment and he's praying. Da, 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 da. You know, I went into this event recently. Sorry, was, that was prayer. <laughs> Separate issue. Um, I went into this uh, event uh, recently, and uh, this was like an organization here in town. And, and the whole premise of this group was like, oh, we're so accepting. We love everyone. It's just like a family here. It's like every company's punchline right now. We're like a family. And, um, and so I go into this event like, oh, okay, so this is a family. Great. This is great. And I walk in, and I get into the middle of the room, and it's like people are just like pushed into the corners. Everyone's like, awkward and like doesn't I'm standing in the, and I'm pretty confident I'm happy to go into groups and stuff and I go in and I'm just standing like in the middle of the room and hi 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 you know and everyone's like pushing I'm like wow this is incredible and it's funny to me because I thought my temptation was to to get that phone out and like oh I'm a busy guy standing here alone and all and and my, that was my temptation but I thought you know what if I was a Pharisee I, I was just like <laughs> that's what I would do. I would like go and hide in my little, whatever they call them, and just uh, pray, <laughs> intercede uh, on my loneliness. But anyway, so it's just interesting to me, like, th- like this whole thing of the Pharisee, and, and you can imagine this, the retaliation of the self-discoverer towards the untrue and not true to yourself moral conformity. But Jesus used a medium to connect the two worlds. Jesus spoke in parables. You see, a parable is a word picture. It doesn't deal in technicalities like the Jewish law. But actually, it deals in attitudes, concepts, and characteristics. You see, the same reason that the parable connected two extremes is the same reason that a parable is timeless. You see, we live in a culture right now that is trying to do away with Scripture in the idea that it was for then and there and it's not for here and now. Jesus, as fully man, fully God, was way smarter than us. He painted word pictures. You know why? So that we can't say that. God, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan anymore because it was for then and there. There's no such thing as a Samaritan. No, he, he worked in, in word pictures so that we could understand the characteristics, the attitudes behind the, the kingdom of God. You see, Christ was busy establishing a kingdom that was going to last till he returns. That includes 2017. Today we're talking about Luke 15. The famous parable of the prodigal son. What's interesting to me about this parable, just before we dive in, is this. Is that the Jews sort of worked inside this concept. That if they wanted to stress a point, they would work on the idea of repetition. Jesus gets to the prodigal son first by way of the prodigal sheep. And first by way of the prodigal coin. You see, what he does is he begins his parable by talking about a man who owned 100 sheep. And he says, if that man lost a single sheep out of his 100 sheep, would he not go leave the 99 and go and find the one? He then proceeds to talk about a woman who has lost one of her 10 silver coins or bridal coins. She loses a bridal coin. That's kind of shameful. Like, that's a bridal. That's very special. That's much more valuable in the context of quantity than sheep. Why? Because out of 100 sheep, he only lost 1%. But you see, out of 10 coins, she lost 10%. But then Jesus brings us even further in. And he talks about a father with two sons. You see, Jesus is building in the value 
for life. The value of a man's life. And he says there is a father who has two sons and he loses one. The stakes have just gone way up. The stakes have gone through the roof. We go from a sheep to a coin to a human life. 1%, 10%, 50%. But the theme remains the same. Something lost, something found. You know, the word prodigal actually means wastefully extravagant. I used to think of the word prodigal and think, oh, you know, wayward. Someone who ran off, gone. No. Prodigal means wastefully extravagant. Having or giving something on a lavish scale. Let's get those wheels turning here. We're going to pick up here in verse 11. It says this. Jesus continued, there was a man, Luke 15, sorry, who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. The message says, I want right now what's coming to me. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together with all all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to feed uh, to his fields to feed his pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. It's interesting to me. Pigs. That was like Jesus is like icing on the cake. He's telling a story and he decides that he's going to make this boy who left home be working among the pigs, the most um, defiled form of meat to the, according to the Jew. And I can imagine that one of the reasons why pigs were so defiled is because of what they ate. And yet, here is a boy who's come out of the riches of his father's house, and all he wants is to eat what pigs are eating. He is the bottom of the bottom. It's interesting, too. The father divides his land up among them. You see, we often think that the father divided the inheritance and so that the younger son could take his away. But actually, the father divided his inheritance and he gave it to both of them. We don't ever think about that. We think about the fact that the, fa- the one son ran away with inheritance. No, the father gave it, he divided it between them. And that word, property or whatever, is, is actually the word life. It's bios. He divided his life among them. This is a Middle Eastern man. This is not you and I. This is not us like, um, oh, prime example. Uh, who here owns a home? Not, I don't mean like paid off, but you just own a home. You got a mortgage. <laughs> Everyone's like, <laughs> Royal Bank. Who here has a home that the bank owns? <laughs> yeah. Um, is it fair to say that that is your greatest asset? If you had two sons... Would you be able to give them the cash for that asset? Or would you have to liquidate that asset in order to give them the cash? You see, we're not dealing with a mere transaction of a father who is getting rid of inheritance that's just accessible. We're talking about a father who is literally pulling apart his life. Land was like the thing for a Middle Eastern family back in the day. It was their thing. It was like... The land doesn't belong to me. I belong to the land. You see, the father was was liquidating his assets in order to give those riches to the son. Imagine the slap in the face for a father. Inheritance is, you know, typically received when someone dies. Imagine the father. Give me what's coming to me right now. So you want me dead? Or... Right, cool, cool. His dignity, honor squandered, et cetera, et cetera. We go on. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, and we know the story well, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What's going on right here? This culture was not about forgiveness. This culture was about forgiveness and restitution. You see, I was not going to just say sorry. I was going to make it right. See, that was the intention of the son. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to come home and make it right. But why was he coming home? Was he coming home because he saw the folly in his ways? Or was he coming home because he was hungry? Right? And this is what the father does. He says, quickly, basically in our culture, shut up. Servants, grab the best robe. Go get it quick. Grab a ring. Grab some sandals. Throw them on his feet. Do your thing. The Amplified says, go grab the festive robe of honor. It reminds me of the story of Zechariah. Um, uh, Zechariah is a prophet in the Old Testament. God basically speaks through Zechariah, and, and Zechariah speaks on behalf of God to tell the people of Israel that they're, they're building this temple for God, and, and it's exciting, and they're doing God's work. But Zechariah's message is this, is that while you're doing God's work, do not neglect an intimate relationship with God. And what happens is Zechariah has this vision of Joshua, the high priest, and Joshua's standing there. He's in these rags, these dirty clothes, and there's an accuser standing there, uh, uh, Satan. He's standing there in the angel of the Lord, and, and he wants to accuse uh, Joshua of being dirty and sinful and all this stuff. And the angel of the Lord says, quick, stop the accuser and put brand new robes on this guy. Put brand new robes on the high priest. And what does he do? He wraps them in new robes. And he says, look, I have washed away your sin and iniquity. What's happening? The father is showing his son that he's washed away his sin and his iniquity. But it goes further. There's another story. Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat. Joseph is this, is this boy who God speaks to, but he has a lot of life lessons to learn. And it finds him like cast out by his brothers. It finds him in a pit. It finds him in prison. It finds him being accused of uh, a few things that were not so nice. And all of a sudden, somehow miraculously, God uses Joseph to interpret dreams for the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says, you are clearly hearing from God. I am going to put you in authority over my entire house. And how I signify that is by, okay, wrap him in fine linens. Wrap him in a nice robe and put a signet ring on his finger. You see, the father was not just forgiving the sin and iniquity of the youngest brother. He was also empowering him with authority and dignity. All in one shot. Man, I would, okay, fine, ring ring and robe. I was joking around with Mark about this. Ring and rope, cool. But I'd hold on to those sandals. Like, you know, I don't know. You might run away again. Let's just keep those sandals close. You can catch them. You see, the son was expecting to ask for forgiveness and then offer restitution. But the, but the father was moved in an instant with compassion. And he was moved to forgiveness and immediate redemption. You see, we think we can qualify ourselves through restitution. But the Father says, no, because I have forgiven you, I have redeemed you. Story goes on. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. I always think of the fattened calf as like Daisy. (laughs) Sorry. No, but just like go with me on this journey, okay? (laughs) There's like this fattened calf. Like it's not like he killed a fattened calf. It says he killed the fattened calf. (laughs) The one. We're the youth. They all want to talk about the one. This is the one. (laughs) 
The fattened calf, it was like the servant's like, Daisy, Daisy. <laughs> feeding the, feeding the, ca- you know, feeding the, the calf. And, and then like the older son always like going by and like, hey, Daisy. <laughs> Thinking that calf, that thing is going to be for a feast. That calf is going to be for one special event. And then, uh, bubble, something involving my life, obviously. Right? Said this. Interesting, the son asked a servant to go and talk to the father about what was going on in the house. He didn't go direct. He just said, what's going on? What's the party about? If we cannot celebrate when the father celebrates, it reveals something in our hearts that needs to change. You see, ultimately, we have a story here of two sons. One son was bad, and one son was good. Both sons wanted stuff from the father. One son found himself alienated from the father's house. Both sons were alienated from the father's heart. You see, moral conformity is no better than self-discovery. Moral conformity found the older brother at his father's house, but not inside the door. One son was hiding in absence, and another son was hiding in goodness. But neither were in his presence. You see, we cannot forget the curb appeal of moral conformity. We cannot forget that when we strip back the layers, it actually leads to the honest reality of what's in our hearts is the pursuit of self-righteousness. The same way I cannot deny the fact that when it's all stripped away from self-discovery, I am just trying to get self-gratified. If I just meet enough people, if I just get to enough places, if I just get away from everything I've known, if I just get out from under leadership, get away from those things, maybe I will find the true me, the real me. Do you realize self-righteousness, self-gratification are false freedoms? They are literally false freedoms. And our culture is fixated on this right now. False freedoms. False, false freedoms. Story goes on. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. doesn't really sound like there's a lot of relationship there between that oldest son and the father. Look at all these years I've been slaving for you. Slaving. He was a son. He was a son. Do any of you feel like you're slaving? Do any of you feel like, look at all these things I've been doing for you, God? Look, what I've, look at the price I've paid. Look at the amazing things I've accomplished for you. You see, when we forget about the price that Christ paid for us, we always feel underpaid in our work for him. Relationship changes us, you know that? I think for myself, it's the most intimate times in my life when I have the most intimacy with God that I find it easiest to do His work. It's when I'm in those most intimate times with God that He changes my perspectives, He changes my pursuits. I'm seeing something in this older brother that scares me for me. 
And it's this thing that my life would become about pursuing judgment and justice. In my zeal and lack of intimacy, my pursuit can become judgment and justice. But you know what relationship does? Relationship changes that. Relationship takes my judgment and justice and changes my pursuit to become about mercy and redemption. You see, the older son wanted judgment and justice. Look at your son who squandered your wealth and you killed the fattened calf. It does not add up. You're right, it doesn't add up. A starving son returns home and his father returns by killing the fattened calf. That is flat out grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor. And it made that older brother angry. Why? Because the older brother was found at the father's house, but he wasn't found in the father's heart. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. One young rebel, one old Pharisee, a father that goes to both, a father that is moved with compassion to the younger, and a father that is moved with compassion to the older, a father that runs out to invite back home a younger son. And a father who pleads with the older to join in the feast. See, if we're really honest, the fattened calf was actually for both of them. If the older brother joins in the feast, he gets the fattened calf. And he's going to be able to eat more than he could ever handle. But it wasn't about the fattened calf. And when you and I neglect intimacy, we look for freedom in the two areas, like the brothers, self-gratification, self-righteousness. Thanks. (laughs) I want to read a quote from Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) This is where things go (laughs) pear-shaped. For those of you that know the story of Sherlock Holmes, he was a um, character renowned for his skill and ability in solving crime. And uh, he had amazing perceptive skills and was able to really read situations, etc. But um, it came at a cost in that uh, Sherlock Holmes had absolutely no people skills at all. And so he was very blunt and very matter-of-fact. Has anyone watched the ones with uh, Batch Cumberland? Uh, Cumberbatch? You know the one, right? Yep. Cumberland? A batch of something in Cumberland? Um, So... He says, he, basically, he has this, uh, his sidekick, which is uh, Dr. John Watson. And Dr. John Watson is this, like, polar opposite. He's a doctor. He's just such a nice guy. He looks like a little mouse. And um, he's just very kind and very caring for people. And basically, Sherlock Holmes connects the, the dots of, of, while I'm busy trying to solve crime, he's busy trying to save lives. And so uh, at John Watson's wedding, Sherlock Holmes is the best man, and he gets up to say his speech, and it's incredibly awkward for a long time. And then he proceeds to say this, I am the most unpleasant, rude, ignorant, and all-around obnoxious idiot that you will ever meet. I am dismissive of the virtuous, unaware of the beautiful, and uncomprehending in the face of the happy. So if I didn't understand why I was asked to be the best man, It is because I never expected to be anyone's best friend and certainly not the best friend of the bravest, kindest man I have ever met. Can I suggest that is the gospel? Both sons have to come through that gate. The gate of not expecting that you could be the best friend of someone who is so kind and so loving like Christ. 
In this story, there are two sons, but no answers. Because ultimately, the ultimate son was telling the story. Romans 8 tells us that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The gospel reveals a third option in this story. You see, not only was Christ born of a virgin, which inevitably made him the oldest in his family, but he's also the firstborn among many brethren, which is you and I. You see, Christ modeled something of what the older brother was needing to model, was needing to be like. He is the alternative. You see, both brothers were pursuing stuff. Both brothers were pursuing their own agenda. One by blatant disobedience and the other by moral manipulation. I'll stick around the house. I'll be here with my father so that my reputation is saved, but I still get his stuff. That's why he was angry when the son returned. He'd have to divide the wealth again. But in this parable, in the coin, in the sheep, in the son, something lost, something found. We find Christ. When both boys were pursuing their own agendas, pursuing their own things, Christ is the one who goes out to seek and save that which is lost. Christ is the one. He is the one. He is the one we did not expect to be our best friend when we realize how wretched we are as human beings. When we realize how twisted our ideologies can get, how twisted our desires can get, how twisted our, our deep-seated issues can be. He is the one, the older brother, who seeks and saves that which is lost. He is the one who acts on behalf of the Father. Neither son acted on behalf of the Father, but Christ, I only see and I only do what I hear and see my Father do and say. You see, Christ showed the younger brother obedience even unto death. And Christ modeled morality, but more so, he modeled love. And it was the art of being about his father's business. I just want to close with that verse that we started with in Philippians. Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, a persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Christ himself laid down his identity. You and I are not going to find freedom in our identity. If it's anything outside of what Christ says, being found in him. Because it's in him that we become Sons of God. It's in Him that we learn how to not give ourselves over to self-discovery or moral conformity. It's in Him that we find out what it is to be a son of God. Because isn't that what the gospel is all about? I was saying, very done. 
<laughs> I just want to say one more thing and then I'm done. Um, I really feel in God that God wants to minister refreshing to people. I kept thinking of that verse. Um, Do not grow weary in doing good. And church, I want to commemorate all of you. Anyone involved here at Oceanside, anyone involved in a local church elsewhere, God wants to honor you in the good that you've done. But he also wants to remind you of his gospel. Because the gospel saves us, but it also keeps us. And sometimes we can grow weary in doing good. But all we need is that gentle reminder from the Father of the price he's paid for us. Just to put the perspective on the cost it puts on our lives doing his work in the kingdom. I just wonder if we could get... Madge. But I just felt like we should take a posture of rest for a second. Whatever that looks like to you. A posture of rest and we just want to invite God to actually minister his presence. Mike spoke last week about... um, Moses speaking face to face with his brother, uh, with, with God, as a friend speaks to a friend. And I feel like part of the overflow of being able to have face to face interaction with God is the sense that his presence is going with us and that he gives us rest. And for some of us that are feeling restless in life, we feel like things are not going our way, we're feeling tired. We're feeling overwhelmed. We're feeling like we're desiring too much to be the hero in our situations. God has a way of bringing his presence to refresh us and in turn putting us in a place of rest. The ultimate expression of faith is rest. Wonderful. Thank you, Wes. Wes, just um, stay here for a moment. Just bow our heads. As, as Wesley was ministering, can't help but be overwhelmed by the love and mercy of God for all of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we fit on that spectrum. He's the answer for both. And I was just thinking of the scripture, this passage in Hebrews, and I just want to read it. It's just a few verses. We can um, worship him. And it's Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 14 to 16. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And this is what he wants us to do today, this verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. No matter where we are, we can come into his presence, into the very throne room because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so that we may receive mercy, so that we get what we don't deserve and we find more grace to help us in every time we are in need. Wes, if you could just pray over us before we worship and God, we just open our hearts to you right now. Lord, we thank you for the picture that you painted in Christ. Lord, when you revealed what real sonship looks like.
Lord, for those that are heavy burdened, Lord, we just ask that you would just breathe your rest into them in Jesus' name. Lord, for the areas in our lives where we've pursued self-gratification or self-righteousness, Lord, the things that stand against your gospel, Lord, we just ask that you would begin to reveal those things to us. Lord, that you would set us free from ourselves. Lord, that you would bring liberty into the areas of our lives that are in bondage because we've tried to control them. Lord, for those of us that feel restless in our lives, for those of us that are in a place where we feel like, God, you're not speaking. I'm doing all these things for you, but God, you're not speaking to me. Lord, remind us again of the price you paid in your son. Lord, remind us again of the great cost to the Father. Lord, that you would open our hearts. I just feel God is saying he's, he's, he's tapping. It's like he's tapping open parts of people's hearts. It's like untapped areas, like the no-fly zones. He's, he's opening those areas up, growing your capacity to love, growing your p- capacity to serve, growing your capacity to be a son in the house. It's like these guarded areas, these things that are just like no one goes there. God is saying, I want that. I want that part. I want to open that part up. I want to unlock that part of your heart. That's where the kingdom is coming. That's an incredible prophetic word, those last moments. I want to tell you what I'm going to be preaching on next week, just the, the scripture in Proverbs. I kid you not, I've been working on it for next week. Above all else, guard your hearts because it's the wellspring of life. God wants to untap us, open those things. And if you'll just stay where you are in the attitude of worship, if you want to stand, some people just feel like that or sit or kneel. Just to spend some time with our Father.